I would say anarchy was always just like who I was like that was part of me because I didn't see like how the government or the system was actually helping anybody or how capitalism is for anybody except for those that are making money off of other people so just like having that understanding of like this isn't right like that gut feeling when you're a kid that why are we doing it this way this system is not okay for people it's really um just there to protect the people with resources or or the people that have the power to take the resources. Hello, 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 and welcome. Welcome to the Inspired Astrology Podcast. This is Lauren K. Hickman. I am talking to you on Friday evening, end of August. We're getting there, people. It is the 27th of August today. Um, how that full moon treat you? How you doing? Um, I'm kind of changing format this week a little bit because I had a topic that I wanted to discuss. Um, earlier this week, we had the Neptune opposition to Mercury. And I, I think that Virgo season is a wonderful time to talk about Pisces matters, considering that these are the balance points, you know? So Neptune, in my mind, is deeply, deeply connected with universality, oneness, those tuning forks that we are. You know, even the the image of the Neptune glyph makes me think of a tuning fork specifically and connecting into that higher mind. And there's a lot of creativity that comes with that and layers and disconnect and illusions and escapism and it just starts to kind of spiral into a different space when you look at Neptune's different expressions right one of those expressions with Neptune is the idea of glamour hello Hollywood glamour sparkle shiny diamonds so when we think about Pisces connected with Neptune we also have to consider things like like that, like glamour itself. Um, I know that a lot of uh, strongly Piscean folks are connected with this idea of like the sparkle and shiny and things being different than they w- what they appear, you know. And, and glamour in our regular language is about makeup and about costumes and presenting yourself in a way that you may not be on a regular basis right so Virgo opposite Pisces you know we have this like process doing the grind the dirt the muck making things happen it's a very bodily sort of process even Virgo connects in with the digestive tract right which is our body's compost heap in a way you know where we we integrate and discern material. So discernment is a great word to go along with Virgo. And, you know, Pisces is kind of the ungrounded version of that. And it's funny, you know, Pisces and the feet, those of you who are familiar with some of the kind of traditional 
body placements of astrology zodiac signs. So what I'm, what I'm thinking about making these, you know, connection points is like, you know, Virgo is the sort of mundane, the, the banal, the, the process, right? Taking out the garbage, doing the things that make it possible to have a clean and beautiful environment. Welcome Libra season coming up. Um, but also the opposite of that, the Virgoan taskmaster is sort of the elusive, dreamy, visual, um, not grounded in reality concepts of, of Pisces. So with Neptune opposite to Mercury, um, (laughs) I had some stuff going on last weekend. We can get into that later on, but, um, I was, I was very ill and under the weather And I had grabbed a copy of the book, Please Kill Me, Please Kill Me, which is the the uncensored oral history of punk by Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain. And I have a 20th anniversary edition. Thank Thank you to Thrift Books, who is not a sponsor of mine. But if you are trying to grab books and you don't want to shop at uh, jeffbezos.com, Amazon, um, you can go to Thrift Books, which has a wide selection, and usually you can find stuff in or out of stock, and usually it comes around if you're looking for it. Anywho, so my friend Travis Abels, uh, who you'll be hearing his story during Libra season, um, suggested that I read this book, Please Kill Me, um, because of how interesting it is, right? So this is an oral history of punk, and it, it's, it's uh, pieced together through oral documentation, so interviews and conversations with artists and roadies and musicians and the people who are around uh, this this culmination point in the late 60s into the 70s. Um, I have always been fascinated with this period of time because I do listen to a lot of punk music and did grow, growing up. Um, big fan of the Stooges, bet you didn't know that. Uh, Patty Smith, man, New York Dolls, Blondie later on, you know, like those kind of things around that scene and that time. Um, David Bowie, The Velvet Underground, huge. So, you know, I'm getting to read this book through the eyes and ears and experiences of the Andy Warhol era into, you know, the late 70s. Um, And I've, I have a fascination I think this is my Pisces moon with artistic movement and expression. And I've watched Andy Warhol documentaries and movies and uh, Jean Basquiat, like who I absolutely adore, (laughs) Jean-Michel Basquiat, the artist. Um, I I just adore that movement. I love that lifestyle and that, that craze and that era and the creativity that was coming out of New York City during this like greasy, gr- grummy, bohemian time where everyone's sleeping on everybody else's floors and rent was cheap and the, the city was dirty and wonderful and thriving with lots of nonsense and human chaos uh, prior to, um, I guess, like observation and the internet and the connectivity and cell phones and all the things that sort of tightened the grip on our awareness. It was just a lot more messy and people needed to connect verbally uh, through their community, looking out the window, there's, there's a lot of space, right? Um, a different kind of space than what we experience now. We we're constantly tied to our phones and electronics and 
instant gratification with information, we don't go to libraries anymore. You know, I mean, we go to libraries, right? Like, you know, you want to grab a book or something, but it's not out of necessity, you know, to borrow a phone book from another city if you're going to move there so that you have access to these phone numbers and information so you can contact people, contact a housing lender or like whatever it is that you need in another space and time that's not in your immediate environment. So I I love that that connectivity that comes back to Neptune. Like I think the internet is probably very Neptunian activity along with Uranus can join those pieces. I'll have to do some history uh, seeking on when the internet came to be. Um, so back to this, this idea of like punk and glamour, um, I'm reading these stories and I'm like, I knew that I would be horrified by some of the like inside information. Right. And it's ugly. It's as ugly as I thought it would be. (laughs) And drug addiction, like excess bloated, puking on people, heroin, sickness, drinking, cocaine piles, sex, 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 sex with underage women, which is very openly written about in this book. And, you know, there's only two primary like female, well, three, three female characters that were kind of on the, um, the rock star spectrum of this. You have Nico who played with the Velvet Underground, Patti Smith and Debbie Harry, which is basically the circulation of this book and everyone else are the wives and the girlfriends and the people that were just kind of like moving around the scene. I, it's like, I'm appalled by this book, but I cannot stop reading it. And I ended up just like stepping into it and not coming out until it was about finished. So I was thinking about this idea of glamour because we've put people on pedestals who honestly are not representing the most noble characteristics of the human experience. This is my opinion, BT dub. Um, I think that we put chaos on a pedestal. I think that we put, (laughs) we put uh, anything that's outside the norm on the pedestal because we all have this deep desire, maybe like on some, some subconscious level, like, to leave society and be free in some capacity, like in nature and our primal instincts and our biology. And so, you know, this book is really, there's so much pleasure seeking in the stories of these individuals and their journeys. And then the people who were taking care of them while they were sick and falling all over themselves and pulling them out of swimming pools and I mean, the sad stories about folks overdosing on quaaludes, getting them caught in their throat, and then someone throws them in the bathtub and they die. Like, that's that's what happened to one of the musicians in the New York Dolls. So, um, anyway, lots of, like, horrific accounts in this. And, you know, certainly there's there's so much, like, glamour and nostalgia written around this era because it was it was such a culmination point of, like, all these different minds and this free thinking and poetry and experimentation and bringing around like the short rock and roll songs again. But I mean, CBGB's was gross. (laughs) These spaces were gross. I can't imagine like what it was like fighting to get to the bathroom at uh, Max's Kansas City and everybody talking shit about you as soon as you walk away from your table. 
Um, I love that that drag queens and uh, the drag scene is included in this book as part of like the experimental the theater and all the things in that that part and parcel in the artistic scene and you know what what it was making me think about is the way that we put things on pedestals right so that's the key point I, I'm, I can drag on and on about this book please kill me is the name of the book right um this expressionism that was coming during an area era of like peace and love and hippies and smiley faces. And then you have the opposite of that, the, the irony of, um, you know, fuck you and like, fuck me. And like, I'll spit all over myself and I won't take care of myself and no one cares. And that's why I only surround myself with other, you know, other people cast away on the, the edges of society, you know, and the, I think, think what I was thinking about with glamour was the way that we we put we put people who know something that we don't know like above us right that we're that we're not equal and the things that I'm concerned about in this time period you know not so much the way that we glitz and glamour rock and roll media like the way that we did so long ago um making that otherness and yet these these rock stars are all very lonely, it sounded like, and very isolated based on their experiences. I mean, Andy Warhol got shot and he had his whole studio open to the public and all the freaks and weirdos and beautiful people coming in and coming out. And then he kind of put a wall around himself after he became vulnerable, even though he was vulnerable throughout that whole thing. Um, where was Jupiter when he needed him? But this this idea that we we put people on pedestals and what i'm seeing in in now during neptune in pisces um is this idea that someone else holds more information than we do or that there's secrets or conspiracies or an experience that we need to have that's outside of our realm and i think that is that neptune in pisces vibe that we have access to so much information and so much fear of missing out and uh, we can see what other people are doing and we hear what other people are doing and we're accumulating more knowledge in one day, accessing more information in one day than a lifetime of gathered experiences to someone who is living in, say, 1850. The age of air, the age of information, the era of age of connectivity, Right. So this idea of, of glamour is when we don't see things for what they are. And I think that happens with a lot of the, the teachers and messaging out there that we, we have to remember um, that Virgo opposite. Like, everyone poops, people. Everyone farts. Everyone is stinky and needs a shower sometimes. Often, <laughs> right? Because we're human beings. Uh, and I think that like, if you can keep that in mind when you're working with people, when you are deciding to listen to another person and to maybe elevate their thoughts and consciousness, their intuition, their uh, ability to gather and process information, you just, you have to remember that these people are human. That's the base of it. And it's really easy to shine things up and have a pretty coat and cover yourself with beautiful adornments, you know, or having a skill or a way with words or poetry or making something beautiful, you know, but the truth is that we're, we're all human. 
So as I was kind of digging into these these concepts of glamour, I grabbed up uh, some esoteric material from the channel and medium Alice A. Bailey, who was active during the 1930s. And Neptune conjoined with her ascendant when she started channeling the works of uh, who's known as the Ma- Master DK, this ascended master teacher, and did some channeling work around that. And I just pulled some of those those quotes um, out of the beginning of the book and these ideas of glamour, a world problem is the name of the book, because if we're not seeing things as they are, if we think that we're further along the the spiritual path, if we think that we are beyond our evolutionary point, then we're not growing. You know, or if we we put our power into another person's hands and ask them to fix us or ask them to hold space for us um, instead of doing it for ourselves, like that's a problem. And the work says, what are you yourself but the outer expression of a divine idea? So these these books are pretty hard hitting. There's a whole whole deck of them uh, printed by the Lucius Trust, and obviously I work from esoteric astrology on a basic, uh, regular basis, is what I meant to say, um, to try to bring in the as much information as I can about evolution with astrology and the evolution of the soul. But there's so much that we don't know. So even these books themselves are tapping into that Neptunian realm, things that are beyond our understanding, or even connecting with that Uranus piece where it's like that direct contact, that aha moment of insight. Um, But we still have to discern. Virgo, discerning. Um, So uh, the, the works allude to this thing, you know, Dharma. Uh, Dharma means duty or obligation. And it is your definite and specific obligation to develop the intuition, real intuitive perception, which when aroused will manifest spiritual illumination, true psychological understanding of one's fellow men and other humans. The intuition has no relation to psychism, either higher or lower. This is um, referring to the astral plane. The seeing of a vision, the hearing of the voice of the silence, which is kind of a beautiful way of putting it, right? Uh, Does not infer the functioning of intuition. Intuition is the synthetic synthesis, the synthetic understanding, which is the prerogative of the soul. And it only becomes possible when the soul on its own level is reaching in two directions towards the monad. Uh, This is a word used in this tradition, the highest spark of the divine that we can contact from our plane of existence, right? So reaching in two directions towards the divine spark and towards the integrated and perhaps, even if only temporarily, coordinated and at one personality. So even when I'm reading these books, I have this like very interesting voice that comes into my head while I'm reading them. And, you know, meditation is the foundation for all of the occultist work that we can do for ourselves and finding integration. You know, this book talks a lot about uh, working with symbols, understanding how symbols work as a uh, representation of things in our reality and in the true reality. Meditation helps us to discern and make friends with ourselves. And 
you know, as we peek through social media and peek through the window and the lenses of other people's curated lives, whatever they're sharing, authentic or trying to be authentic or maybe not so much, you know, presenting the projected version of oneself, which is super common. I mean, we all, we all have a representative that we put out there, right? And that's, that's part of ego's function is to protect this like delicate inner world inside of us. It's not that easy to be thick skinned and porous at the same time, um, especially to you empaths out there listening. I think you know what I'm talking about. So finding teachers that you can work with, that you can use discernment with, um, I, I, I read once about the word guru and, you know, it's this idea of the, the root teacher, having a root teacher who mirrors and reflects your own consciousness. And guru practices, in, in my understanding from, from people that I've met who've done very sincere devotional practices and the um, Eastern traditions and philosophies that honor the guru practice, is that we you know, we, we look to the guru for insight and wisdom. And at some point we have to see ourselves as a guru, as the, as the insight and the holder of wisdom and truth and clarity, because we are, you are all the books that you need. You have all of the information inside of you. And the guru helps us to recognize and establish that we have the capability, that we have the ability to step into that plane of understanding if we do the work. And this leads me to some of the insight that I have gained for myself, um, just having celebrated 11 years of sobriety at the beginning of August. This has been a pretty powerful month for me um, on a lot of levels. This has not been a great year. A lot of stupid shit has happened in my personal life and I am not alone in that because I speak with all of you and I hold space for all of my clients that are going through this well of shit and processing and Pluto retrograde and personal transits and Saturn square Uranus transits and all the crap that is going on. Um, I hold space for you, but I also have to hold it for myself. And, you know, I had health things just knock me off this, this perpetual, you know, I was trying to like move into my business and trying to take the work from in person into the virtual landscape. And that's part of what this podcast is meant to me is to, to cast my voice out to a larger audience and to be accessible to more people and to try to do that uh, with sponsorship and with, with support from my audience members. So thank you for that. Um, but with, with the health things that happened in the spring and then you know, kind of stepping into a mental health crisis this summer, recognizing that I have been battling depression for most of my life. And a big part of my battle with depression was self-medicating, hence the 11 years of recovery. And if you haven't gone back to one of my earlier episodes hearing about like who Lauren is and where she came from and all of those things, you can hear the full gamut of my you know, it's not the full story, but you're going to get the like the Cliff's Note version of what happened and what it's like and what I'm doing now, right? But I have been super pissed off because even with as many years as I have in recovery, I still have to work with it. I still have to keep dealing with this illness of substance abuse disorder, you know, what, what uh, you know, some groups would call alcoholism, uh, addiction, 
you know, I think that they're trying to update the language to be a lot kinder and to reframe it so it doesn't seem like you're a pariah on society, right? I mean, they even suggest to newly sober people not to really share or disclose to others about their experience as an alcoholic because it can be super triggering for other people. Or there's, you know, old concepts and ideas about what uh, an alcoholic looks like. And if you if you see me through social media, that that's what an alcoholic looks like. But this is what a sober addict and alcoholic looks like at this point. Doesn't mean I'm fully sane. Uh, I think after you know working through some of the you know initial issues, getting my my brain chemistry sorted out with the with the new medication introduced. Um, I had to get real with myself and remove the glamour that I don't need help continuously with the disease of alcoholism. So that's my big talent on myself <laughs> is that I am, uh, you know, going back to doing step work and, and reading the literature and kind of stepping back into um, a program that has worked for me and got me sober many moons ago. Um, I went and found some some folks uh, out here in Milwaukee, and turns out a lot of a lot of people got sober in New York City, just like I did. And uh, there was some really wonderful tears shed and laughter shed uh, when we connect with others who can see and understand us. It's less isolating, you know. And and I feel that if you if you have not recovered from alcoholism, it's really hard. Or if you're not if you're not struggling with it and trying to get out of it, right? It's really hard to identify with other people. Um, so alcoholism and addiction is under that guise of Neptunian issues. I think the height of mine was when Neptune conjoined with my Pisces moon uh, back in the the late aughts. That was kind of when the worst of it happened, and when I decided to get sober because I just could not live with the way that things were going. I think I hope that this has kind of come together in in some capacity to make sense in the idea of glamour as illusion, as us not seeing things as they are. And when I was young, this young artist, this young writer, um, I thought that I had to do what other writers did that I loved, you know, which is drink and smoke cigarettes and kind of culminate disastrous experiences to have something to write about. Uh, even my sisters joked with me like, you know, well, yeah, of course you're not going to take SSRIs because who wants to listen to like, you know, a normal, boring, banal person that's just like, you know, functioning, highly functioning in their life. (laughs) And I think that's also glamour speaking as well, that we think that things have to look a certain way that, oh, if you're an artist, then you're, you know, a mess, right? Or you're, you, you digest emotional trauma and puke it out onto the page, right? In some, some form or another, um, Yes, that it, I think that artists are much like healers and, and intuitives the way that I feel. Um, I, you know, I did I did a speech for uh, the, the River Arts Salon uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, a couple years ago. Um, it's actually when I met my partner was that night. But uh, I, I talked specifically about the idea that artists are energy interpreters the same way... Uh, <laughs> the same way that uh, healers are. We get insight, we get vision, and then we have to transmute that or transmit it in some capacity. That word transmit, there's Neptune again, that frequency, that vibrational piece of it. 
anyway, I'm rambling at this point. I, I thought I would give you a little update report of what's what's happened in the world. So we just got through the full moon in Aquarius and the sun ingressed, which is to move into the sign of Virgo. Uh, pretty soon here, September 2nd, Thursday next week, we have Mars and Virgo opposite to Neptune and Pisces. And we've been talking about that Virgo Neptune opposition, health, body, and then the ideals and visions of what we have for ourselves. Neptune is incredibly healing, you know, and so is Virgo. Saturday, we have Mercury trine Saturn, probably a good day to write. That's a nice, that's a nice earthy energy. Uh, Hopefully you don't, you know, fall into depression with that because sometimes sometimes Saturn and Mercury conjoined do not make for good times but if you are a writer uh, or trying to get some some thoughts on the page get something organized of course Saturdays are Saturn days so it's a it's a good time to to ground some work before you head out for Labor Day weekend or you know make some plans right and Saturday September 5th that's a Sunday Venus square Pluto There's a couple of Venus-Pluto things happening. Uh, Always good time to get deep about what you value, what you're connecting with. So that's going to be Venus and Libra. Of course, about discerning what's best for us versus am I doing this for someone else? Uh, There's that discernment piece there. And when Mars enters Libra, we'll, we'll talk more about that piece as well. So the new moon in Virgo is on Monday, September 6th have some other aspects that day Mars and Mars trine Pluto uh, Venus trine Jupiter Sun trine Uranus so that should be a really fun report day for Labor Day it looks like things are gonna get um, let's see Sun trine Uranus that makes me think of um, expect the unexpected so we'll see what happens that day uh, right. So Venus will go into Scorpio on Friday the 10th. And I think that I'll, I'll stop from that. But we'll have we'll have sun opposite to uh, Neptune, which will, you know, further highlight some of these navigations with um, our conscious vision for ourselves, uh, how we can ground the idea of who we are, who we want to be to dare to dream who we wish to be in this world. So this week I have the amazing Molly Free joining me on the podcast. Uh, we had some technical difficulties, which happens on occasion because I am a novice when it comes to podcasting. Uh, maybe someday I'll have an intern that can do the, the dirty work for me. But right now it's just me and my phone and some Zoom recordings and sometimes some wacky internet problems. But uh, Molly Free is an incredible Virgo soul that I am so privileged to have met in Des Moines, Iowa. I knew her as an artist, uh, lots of 12th house activity in her world, um, beautiful visionary art that she creates. She has a show currently at Ritual Cafe in downtown Des Moines. Her work is up, available for sale. And you know, Molly, Molly's done a couple of my tattoos, actually my, um, the day of my, uh, 10 year anniversary from kind of the liberation movement of my life. July 13th, 2009 was when everything got shook up for me. 
Um, and I had her do a X for 10 years on my ribs a couple years ago. And I got to do that with some of my dear friends and it was a very celebratory experience. And uh, she's, she's really magical. Um, she's now the owner of Creative Images, which is a staple female-owned tattoo parlor that's been around since the 80s. And Molly took it over uh, just in the last couple of years when uh, classic tattoo Sherry um, decided to retire after all those years. Never got a tattoo from Sherry. Kind of regret that, but I've seen them. I appreciate them. I appreciate that Molly gets to carry on that torch. But I got a chance to talk with her and find out way more about her experience uh, being an anarchist as a, as a young person and to continue to carry that tradition by uh, doing mutual aid work, uh, really trying to bring change and through service of course this you know virgo season we're going to talk all about service this month um true service mentorship uh getting shit done not needing the accolades or the glamour or the ribbons or the prize for every little thing that you do this is about doing the work and making sure that it gets done and to think of community and earth and processing in the in the best way possible So I know Molly uh, got involved with the BLM movement last summer because mutual aid was a need for people who were being put in in prison in in the community that she was in. Uh, And I I find it uh, very appropriate that her last name is Free and she was the person showing up to let people out of, uh, of jail with the mutual aid funds that she was spearheading to collect. Um, She saw a need and she took action on that uh, based on her experience in doing sort of um, civil disobedience, food not bombs, uh, the involvement with the houseless communities within the Des Moines area and the mutual aid that was provided last year, uh, this year, 2021, I, I feel like I've lost track of time entirely. Who am I anymore, right? Who are any of us? But yeah, this this February in 2021, uh, there was a, a polar vortex and we didn't have shots out yet. And you'll have to remember that, that a lot of this work was done when we were not supposed to be around one another. And Molly and the crew of mutual aid and housing mutual aid in the Des Moines area were able to house a massive amount of people for over 10 days and have food and meals provided for a huge community of, of folks that were really struggling and the government was not stepping up to deal with them, you know, and so I think that there is a space and place for mutual aid and for you know this conversation about anarchism and how it fits into society in a functional way. Uh, you know, I think that there is a need for structure, just like Saturn and Capricorn kind of rule systems. I think that, that there is a benefit from that. It can't all be, it can't all be chaos, but there does need to be a connection point where we where we see what needs to get done and we act on that, and that can be chaos into order, right? Um, I want to thank Andrea Gorsh with K Apothecary for continuing to support the Inspired Astrology podcast. K Apothecary is in Mount Vernon, Iowa. They have an online shop, which is absolutely tremendous and really carries the the vibe of their business. And I think that they've done a beautiful job curating the feeling 
and the aesthetic of the store within their virtual model. And I have to give props to that because that's that's not an easy thing to do is to bring your voice, your style into the virtual space. But they have a wonderful community uh, of classes and workshops available on a, a regular basis. Andrea and the Witches There at K do so much work to provide spaces for people all over the world to sit and talk about tarot, to have uh, instructional writing time or free writing time, uh, to talk about numbers. Number nerds is one of those things. And of course, Andrea Gorsh, if you can get on the schedule with her to do a numerology reading, um, such an additional help to the work that we do. But more so than that, the makers, the the local arts, the the products that are carried in the store. It all started with Andrea Gorsh making a like a linen spray. Uh, that's one of the famous products. But but further back from that, it was living with celiac disease and not being able to find uh, prominent gluten free products out on the market, which is really important to people who are you know living with celiac, which is a uh, it's a terrible allergy condition where you can have really poor responses, whole inflammatory responses to, um, to different pathogens that you can be introduced to uh, through wheat and through other grains of sorts. Um, anyhow, so she got the business started based on that model of trying to meet a need that was not available in the market. And it just sort of propelled from there. They just won a big business award in the Mount Vernon community for keeping it together, continuing to support and celebrate the community, even when we couldn't be around each other throughout 2020 and 2021. Um, So I just big props to Andrea. Uh, If you stop through Mount Vernon, holy crap, it's really close to Iowa City. Like it's on the way between Des Moines and Milwaukee if you're coming up to see me or just doing some little travel bits here and there before the cold season hits once again. But uh, the, the shop is beautiful. It's in an old natural food store. I've gotten to stop through there. I st- my linen towel that I purchased there is always with me. I love that item. But beautiful candles, beautiful books. Uh, it's just curated and gorgeous crystals and all of the great things that, that you would want in home care and in, in intentional living. If you practice uh, paganism, witchcraft, uh, what have you, there's, there's something for everyone there. So all, all are welcome at K Apothecary and you can find them online at K-A-E-A-P-O-T-H-E-C-A-R-Y, kapothecary.com. All right, so I'm bringing Molly Free on the show and stay inspired. Right, Molly Free, I know it's a little bit challenging to introduce yourself on the spot, but I'd love to get your pronouns, your vocation, um, what services or passions that you feel like sharing about yourself today. All right. Um, my name's Molly Free or Molly Rose Free, and um, my pronouns are she, her, they. And I have been a tattoo artist for 12 years now. Um, And I work with Des Moines Mutual Aid and uh, we do all kinds of of things that uh, are service to people in, in Des Moines. How did it come about with the, the mutual aid? I'd love to maybe start in recent history and then we can go back further. Yeah. 
So recent history, things like just developed into much more this past summer, but my husband and I, Ronnie Free, uh, we started um, visiting houseless people maybe five years ago. It's hard to say, but also we have um, an anarchist background where we did food not bombs for many years and um, just kind of the mutual aid concept was really natural and made sense to us. Um, but about five years ago, we'd go out to camps in Des Moines. There was a really horrific winter and we'd bring coffee and, and just kind of talk to people and see how they were doing and like what things were challenging them. We collected stories and uh, just tried to like be someone for them to talk to and feel like they're heard and that they're not like, I would say, uh, well, everybody was calling it blight on the city at that time. Um, to be heard as a person. And that's kind of where things began. There was myself and then and Ronnie and then two other people joined us with that and uh, that went on for quite a while. Um, we witnessed camps of maybe 50, 50 tents bulldozed by the city and uh, people losing all of their personal belongings or having just a few minutes to kind of gather what they could and get out of the way. And this was during the winter, um, one of the coldest uh, days of the year. That made a, a big impression. <laughs> to witness that and to only, you know, you're, you're offering a service of, of witnessing and of showing up for people. That term blight, is horrific. I mean, you think of that as like pestilence or pests on crops, like taking advantage of things when these are people who essentially need support and housing and safety and security. I can't imagine what it was like to witness that. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was too much for some people to witness that. And they kind of had to, to not be a part of that. That and there's um it, it took a while to feel completely comfortable i think that there's this sense that you're in danger in those spaces that you've been taught that that they're dangerous they're they're different like yeah that it made some people really uneasy to be in these spaces i think it's also because it's like so different than what we're told is like how you're supposed to live. Than what the cookie cutter image that we're projected to on TV, that everyone's has a house and, you know, maybe the representation of a nuclear family unit that no longer exists for the most part, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. 
Wow. And I think the biggest lesson that we learned that winter too was also like there was this um, shelter that many of us know is CIS and um, they operated much like a jail. That's how a lot of people felt when they were there um, where you had many restrictions and um, if you said the wrong thing, you could be turned out into the cold. But there just wasn't always space for people too. Like even if it was in an, like an emergency mode where they'll let anybody in, not everybody felt comfortable. Um, and a lot of people just, they have a community when they're camping that isn't anywhere else and they prefer being on their own and not um, necessarily tied to a permanent physical space or a house that or an apartment that comes with bills and everything else. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of a, a film that won quite a few awards this year, even in the absence of movie theaters being open. Um, it's called Nomadland. Are you familiar with this one? I've heard of it, but I haven't mm -hmm. watched it. Right. Well, Frances McDormand stars in it, and other there's no really other actors in it. They're actually people who live in that that lifestyle, that kind of roving, um, either living in in this one specifically, it's like living in a vehicle rather than these campsites. And um, the networks and the connections that are made for these individuals and communities uh, to live on uh, BLM land, mm -hmm. uh, the Department of, you know, uh, the interior has landscapes that people can go camp on for, you know, less determined amounts of time versus having to pay for campsites. And, you know, for some people, it's, it's the only way they, they choose to live. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot more articles about van life living or living out of buses. And there's been a lot of exposés in the Atlantic and other larger magazines to bring, to bring some humanity to these individuals rather than thinking of them as other which is what I'm what I'm hearing through your experiences of just contacting those spaces. I think Nomadland is definitely worth watching because it you know it gives gives some perspective on things. But a, a lot of people are just kind of turned out uh, that they don't have access to income or they don't want to live in regular housing or have be tied down to those bills. But there is a need for safety and security. I think it's interesting that that it's called BLM land and the influx of houseless people during the pandemic and then BLM as in the Black Lives Matter movement really coming to a head uh, last summer. Yeah, it does seem very like it correlates. <laughs> I'd love to go back and hear more about uh, what brought you to anarchism and to you know, food, not bombs, like maybe let's, let's talk a little bit about childhood since I'm interviewing you during cancer season, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, where you grew up, uh, what sort of, what was the, the, the point on your path that things kind of turned and you realized you wanted to live an alternative life, which also includes you being covered 
pretty much head to toe with tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, shoot. I would say it's like maybe something that's always been a part of me, but I probably recognized it the most, like just feeling like really different as far as like how religion was brought to me. Like I was raised very Catholic and uh, never felt comfortable with that. And um, just saw like in the world, I guess, like I always had like a bigger picture of, of how things affected people and seeing in the world how um, religion in general really takes from people, takes from other cultures, uh, destroys lives, um, that it was really more of a negative thing. And I always felt like it was a negative thing for me as well. Yeah, and I, that's just been reinforced over and over again seeing how it's affected people all over the world, just all cultures and um, locally. And yeah, I think, you know, it brings to mind like the, the children that were found um, in the mass grave recently. Uh, there's been mass graves in Ireland. There's been um, whole like religions changed just so that they have to like not be persecuted and destroyed. <laughs> My travels to different countries have definitely like influenced that as well. Um, yeah, I'd say around age 12, I really just was over it completely as far as religion goes. I do remember like being five and falling asleep in church and being yelled at by a pastor and like, horrified by that <laughs> but it was like age 12 where I was really just like this isn't right and it isn't me and I know, hate like... thinking about you as a small child in a vulnerable <laughs> state of like falling asleep like that beautiful restful and then wake up you know someone yells mm -hmm. at you that is that is trauma seriously it was not yeah it was traumatic the fact that I still remember it and can like picture him perfectly. When did you find other people that you could connect with or were you kind of a loner um, after age 12 and sort of finding your way? Um, I would say high school really started like uh, seeing that more people were interested in like natural energy, like spiritual things. Yeah, definitely connected with people in high school, like about fairies and about um, just nature and feeling energy and uh, things that I'd always like felt, but you are kind of repressed as a child, like slowly taught like that that's not how you're supposed to think or feel or talk to trees and birds and, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
you're my other Anne of Green Gables, my love. <laughs> um, so what did early spirituality look like for you? Did you find um, shops in Des Moines or practices or were there films that influenced you or books that influenced you early on? Mm. Uh, for me, it was plants. Like I connected with plants from the get go. My parents are both avid gardeners and I um, would just sit with them and um, probably be talking to them <laughs> and their spirits before I even knew like what that really meant or how to listen really well you know like maybe I was a good listener but it, it just it was uh not as uh, understood <laughs> you know what I mean I really do know what you mean because learning, yeah. learning how you speak with spirit is a lifelong journey and everyone does it differently <laughs> yeah and I feel like we're constantly relearning it because I feel like as a child I I probably didn't you know, have those barriers that you think that, oh, yeah, you're just in your imagination. And then suddenly you're, you're wondering if you talking to yourself or to plants or birds is like you being super weird <laughs> and um, like that that's not okay, that you should be, you know, engaged in other activities I guess <laughs> what is normal you know normality right? is a delusion we're all really insane yeah <laughs> I think Todd Rasher wrote that but can you think of any other influences like I love how what's your relationship with plants now do you still work with plants or extracts definitely yeah I um I grow a lot of things I let a lot of things grow that I think other people would call weeds. I have mm -hmm. this dandelion patch <laughs> that is like the largest dandelion leaves you could imagine. Literally, I've had evening primrose decide to grow in the yard like just a few years ago, and now there's there's a lot of it, and I I love it. Um, it's wonderful, like the flowers just as a tea to make the oil. It's it's definitely more of a process that I don't have time for, but um, would love to someday. <laughs> um, yeah, I just recently found a nice patch of elderflowers that I'm drying this morning. I picked them off their stems so that like the stem is not really something you want in your um, medicine. So Picking the little flowers off the stem is like nice and meditative too. And I'm gonna um, cover them all in honey and let it kind of soak for a while. Then I'll have this wonderful elderflower honey that's super yummy and good for you. Yeah. I'm always in awe of people who really have that engagement. You know, I've had periods where I felt I don't know that I that I could kind of do that nourishing tradition like those those very like human skills that we learn from our ancestors and stuff and and then I get back to the rat race and I don't make time for it and then I feel disconnected um maybe I'm just uh romanticizing your relationship with this because I know how busy you are so 
Thank you for reminding me that I can, I can engage with plants anytime I choose to. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard though to make those times some, sometimes, especially with all the stuff we're all doing, but once you do, it's like, Oh yeah, yeah. that was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is, what is parenting taught you? Oh, this that's a loaded question. <laughs> really hard, Aww. but it's been good too. Like it's it's a lot. It was really hard to know what to do. Like once the pandemic started, <sighs> it was yeah. Um, well, I think also because I'd always talked about like once the kids were near high school age like maybe like doing that van life, like hitting the road, showing them the world more, um, that sort of thing. And it kind of felt like that's what was supposed to happen. Like that was maybe what I'd kind of like, I don't know, manifested in a way, but um then when it came down to like the community and everything that was happening on like the larger scale beyond just like me and my family and kids, like it didn't seem right to like leave the community and just like abandon kind of a, um, yeah, a, a place and the land that we were on and the people that we had made um, connections with. So we did wow. like online school all of last year and that was okay at first, but um, it was really hard to keep them motivated to continue. Um, and I totally get it. Like, it really didn't feel like it was worth it. Like, they were learning much of anything. They yeah. had a few good teachers at the beginning. Um, I would say, like, the old school Roosevelt teachers that started off, like, they did a really great job. Um, but then they were forced to go um to some in-person time and the school had to shift things and then we got a lot of teachers that were just doing online kind of to begin with and uh, the teaching was just it wasn't there it was very much more like self-motivated if you can be self-motivated to learn some stuff that feels totally unnecessary then you'll survive <laughs> yeah do you think that it felt unnecessary because of the backdrop you know it felt like the world was burning down last definitely year definitely part of it definitely but also like you know like in high school you just there's some things that seem like oh, I'm never going to use this and you don't and you don't <laughs> the truth you is don't. you don't yeah, and half of, like, the high school experience is the social aspect, um, learning 
people that are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, finding like your people that you connect with and you know that wasn't there there was none of that they were never asked to like even turn their cameras on so they could see each other yep um it just it, it went downhill fast <laughs> and um yeah for people that have like social issues or anxiety issues it's just been totally exasperated through all this being a kid in high school and it's just like there's so many things that you're terrified of (laughs) of like getting to know people or whether people will accept you and I feel like it's just really made that worse for some yeah Ugh. You couldn't pay me to go back to high school unless I knew everything I knew now. Right. <laughs> Did you go to Roosevelt? No, I grew up in Cedar Falls. But what, what brought you to Des Moines? And again, how did you get into anarchy? <laughs> <laughs> I would say anarchy was always just like who I was. Like that was part of me because I didn't see like how the government or the system was actually helping anybody or how capitalism is for anybody except for those that are making money off of other people. So just like having that understanding of like, this isn't right. Like that gut feeling when you're a kid that why are we doing it this way? This system is not okay for people. It's really just there to protect the people with resources or for the people that have the power to take the resources. So I think that's just like, as a kid, you, you either feel that or you can explore that or you don't that you just kind of do what you're told and and follow direction and um I I just think a lot of people don't necessarily question like what what is the norm I guess and that's, it, it was really upsetting for me as a kid. And I think that's the other thing that I'm seeing, like, in my kids that it's like, oh, yeah, they've never been necessarily forced to, like, eat some information that doesn't feel right. They can make those choices. And uh, religion has never been something that, we made them do they were always able to like explore it if they wanted to but it was nothing something we were gonna force on them yeah and I think the I guess (laughs) probably 9-11 played a big role in following other or finding other people to really um that maybe understood it or felt it the way I did. Like, 
I was really upset with the majority of people's reaction to 9-11, how there was um, instantly American flags flying everywhere. People were just embracing this um, patriotic, like kind of no content um, <laughs> uh, I don't know way of being and uh, we're okay with any like added uh, restrictions to your privacy or I don't know that and like I saw lines and lines of people at the gas station filling up their tanks and that felt so gross like they were only concerned about whether they could drive their car to work. We're, you know, we're of the generation that were like on the verge of adulthood when 9-11 went down. And there's such a difference between us and the kids that only saw Osama bin Laden as a monster, you know? Mm -hmm. So when, when he was taken out in 2011, like March of 2011, there was such a different response from your generation, our generation and the ones behind us. And I, don't, I mean, what you're describing, like being alive at that time and being so impressionable. And, you know, I remember that was when I started going to, to marches and rallies was around the Patriot Act and mm-hmm. the Islamophobia, mm-hmm. uh, just the knee jerk reaction to this conflict that that goes i mean it's it's cultural differences it's viewpoints it's bad guy versus good guy versus you know how things really are yeah so yeah the word terrorism like became a thing and it was only used to like describe other uh communities of brown people that were our enemies it didn't describe like anything other than that. Um, now it it encompasses a lot of things, but it took a long time for like domestic terrorism, which doesn't even actually describe it the way it should. The fact that you know, like all of the mass shooters, for the most part, have been white men and that is now finally being called terrorism in in a way but yeah so i met ronnie in cedar falls he had moved there um to get away from the drug culture in indianola and des moines that he was just really frustrated with seeing so many of the people he grew up with uh, addicted to like meth or other mm-hmm. things that just like was awful and um, just wanted kind of a fresh start. And um, he was lucky enough to find some people that were interested in anarchy, anarchism, um, anti-capitalist like thoughts and and kind of lifestyle and uh 
so that kind of brought us together because um, I would say my my core friends there were definitely like anti-capitalists to the core, even though that wasn't really terminology that we used. We just um, lived a different a different way. Like we we all would live in a, a house together and make music and um, make art and do all kinds of fun, silly things and get out and do direct action events, even though we like that that's what we were doing. We we're just like, you know, causing kind of chaos wherever we <laughs> went in like a fun way, uh, making movies, um, that sort of thing. And uh, I lived in a house with nine people and I think 11 cats. <laughs> and, um, it was the house that people would hang out at. We would dumpster dive food and always have something for someone to eat. Um, there was always like instruments. We had house projects. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a magical time. And uh, I went to a party at a friend's house, but didn't know like everybody there or whose birthday it was. And um, Ronnie was there and we kind of became inseparable. <laughs> Sat down next to him and introduced myself. This was like, it was during a time that I was very anti-relationship um, because I'd kind of had my heart broken a little bit and wasn't quite ready for anything and um, had seen him <laughs> a few months earlier and uh, I was like, oh, he's cute, you know, but I'm not, not ready for any of that. And I knew like from the first moment that it was, it was going to be like one of those people that change you and I wasn't quite ready for that change but apparently two months later I was and uh, asked him to go to Mexico with me <laughs> and he said yes. I was planning to go there to check out a school that I was planning on going to for graduate school and uh, yeah we we got on a bus with two other people and went to the border and hitchhiked from there until we got to the town that my um, future graduate school was at. What did you study in Mexico? Just art. I was yeah. always doing art. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mostly drawing, painting, that sort of thing. Yeah. Where did that come about, Molly? I'd love to, that'd be a good transition point. Like, mm. So I just was always drawing and it was encouraged. And I was, you know, met some wonderful people that along the way that just let me, let me draw and do my thing. And um, yeah, I guess I just always knew that it was something for me to release like my energy when it was pent up. I always had a hard time really 
vocalizing some of my thoughts, feelings, and, you know, feeling a little different and weird. I didn't know how to say something, so I'd draw pictures instead. That's beautifully said. I don't think I need to pick at it anymore. I think that, <laughs> that says a lot to me. Space right now that I'm, I'm doing a mural for a company. And, uh, yeah, it's progressing. It's fun. Do you like doing small things or big things or both? Well, that's that's a good question because I love painting large things. But all of my tattoo work is very, like, meticulous and detailed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's super tiny. (laughs) So, yeah, I think... The painting and the drawing big is necessary to release like different energy than the tattooing. Yeah, the tattooing feels more like um, like a healing service rather than um, my creative outlet. In but it is at the same time like that's hard to explain because mm-hmm. even the tattooing feels very intuitive most of the time as one of your clients I would agree with that (laughs) statement I want you to talk more about the the nature of like healing through tattoos and maybe how you found creative images I learned how to tattoo from a good friend of mine that who was like also in that apartment at that party when I met Ronnie um (laughs) from Cedar Falls, but uh, he had moved to Des Moines and that's where Ronnie and I landed after coming back from Mexico. Yeah, it was kind of the the normal dude shop with uh, sometimes decent music, but sometimes like really obnoxious boy metal stuff that is not really conductive to relaxing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I like all kinds of music. I really do. I love metal. I love hardcore. I love blues, jazz, like all of it. But to be working and like trying to help a person like focus and relax and listen to crazy music is just, it seems really counterintuitive. <laughs> But um, I'd heard about Sherry, Sherry Sears, um, Tattoo Sherry. Everyone said that, like, she was kind of, you know, the godmother of tattooing and that I had to meet her. And I had a good friend that I worked with um, before tattooing that had gotten all of their tattoos from Sherry and kind of put in a good word for me and... um, when my friend decided to move to Arizona to like pursue his own thing with his family, then I went and found Sherry because I felt, you know, I was maybe a year into tattooing at that point and still needed to like learn. And I always feel like I'm learning, but like really like gain more perspective about all this so that's when I found Sherry and she established creative images in 1983 she was uh 
one of two tattoo artists in Des Moines. Um, the other one being a creepy, creepy dude that nobody really liked. Tattooing Ted, I believe. <laughs> but yeah, she became like a person to go to if you didn't want to get a tattoo from a kind of sleazy dude. So. so you are now the owner of Creative Images, established mm-hmm. in 1983. Yes. Well, since you're on hiatus from tattooing, <laughs> what happened last year with, you know, maybe let's talk about what mutual aid is, how it relates to the work that you did in houseless camps around Des Moines and what that role, that position looks like for you now. So let's see. The hiatus. Well, we had two months off. Um, where everything was closed down and um, during that time and like the year and a half prior we had been taking burritos and um, just vegan burritos out to people at camps and locating new camps and kind of just seeing where they were at and how they were doing and how the city had been affecting them. We, in the past, had filed appeals for um, evictions, which the city calls encroachments, in order to like um, get away with evicting people without evicting them. They just changed the language. Um, but we had We'd filed some appeals and usually it would give uh, campers a little bit more time to kind of figure out where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do and maybe we could help relocate them. Usually, you know, an appeal doesn't do much. Um, In the past, we'd have to uh, ask the individuals to go in person to the court house and kind of give their statement and that's not really something a lot of people would want to do for one that environment is like created to like make you feel like a criminal and to criminalize your behavior so that was yeah it usually wasn't very successful depending on you know the people's uh, motivation I guess um this past year like since covid there's been um everything's been on the phone on the phone we'd have to call in and uh we were able to like be witnesses and um if if the campers would rather us do some of the kind of talking and give like the background of what and why, then we were um, given the the title of um, representative for the campers. So we'd basically just call and and (laughs) give the city our, our grief about how how wrong it was to try to push people out of a space during 
either cold weather or during a pandemic or whatever the situation was and, and kind of argue a case of need and necessary. And a few times we, we did win those appeals and were given quite a bit of time, but recently that has all changed. Um, they found other ways to get around it. They're saying like things are in an emergency state, like that the environment is or that they have to repair a bridge or they have to move some things to clear a levee. Uh, all these other excuses that uh, make our appeals not, um, not as helpful, but we still give them more time. Um, so that's been a lot of the, the houseless stuff. We, we, did, <laughs> we did a crazy campaign in February during some Arctic, uh, what they call it? It was the polar vortex. Polar vortex, yes. So that was crazy, awful temperatures, and someone, uh, I'd say, trigger warning, uh, froze to death. And we were asking around as to what the city was going to do and didn't really see any solutions actually being proposed. People were upset, but nobody was doing anything. And, and that's kind of where mutual aid comes in, where you find a problem to um, something in your community that, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily something that the government isn't taking care of, but maybe they're not doing it well, maybe they're not um, actually treating people like humans. <laughs> um, but finding, finding a problem and uh, working through a solution. And we brought 180 people into hotels for about 10 days to get out of the polar vortex um, with money that was all raised by the community uh, and with many, many people helping support that happen. Um, they were fed every day that they were in the hotels as well. And that was a huge community effort between multiple mutual aid groups and uh, just people that were sympathetic. Uh, even the hotel was buying meals. So. What I asked you was, um, I mean, for, you know, further just commentary on the, you know, the, the government's lack of governance when it comes to humanitarian reasons. I mean, I think infrastructure, uh, yeah, it's nice to pay taxes and have paved roads. Uh, but what we're seeing is this total lack of empathy towards humans, uh, which is why we build fucking roads. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I think that your definition in the beginning about protecting a system that's only built for those with resources uh, is, is spot on. Um, and your description of housing 180 living, breathing 
human bodies for 10 days during a polar vortex. Uh, I mean, I don't need to tell you that that's a, a fierce um, campaign, as you put it. Uh, I'm sure it took a lot of coordination, but from a space of love, anything is possible. Absolutely. How, how did you, how did this become part of your routine? I think is the big question that I have um, as someone who may not have, like, you know, an audience member who's interested in direct action or activism such as this, um, you know, like, have you been arrested? What is scary? What is a good way to start? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a lot of good questions. Um, I have not been arrested. I've been strip searched by police, which was gross. Wait, I, no, I had a ticket for interference with official acts, but um, that's about it as far as that goes. But um, yeah, I think, oh shoot, Um, getting started. I guess finding like-minded people that you feel would have your back to begin with is kind of key. Like that's what we call like an affinity group within um, like anarchist organizing is your affinity group is, is your people that you know them, that you know that no matter what, they're gonna make sure that, you know, if you get arrested or like having a battle buddy when you go into a protest is like super key. Um, it doesn't have to be a large group, but it could just be, you know, your favorite person that also will run into the police line if, if needed for you, um, or grab your hand and run, or do whatever needs to happen, or be there at the jail, like, waiting for you to get released. Um, yeah, those, those battle buddies that you know like are passionate about the work too is is good and then like you if you have your affinity group you know brainstorming and what what is bothering you the most about what's happening in your community then you can like run all these ideas past them and they can be motivated about them too and they can bring their insight and uh, pretty soon you are starting a mutual aid group that uh, you know has all the people that is needed to kind of fight some of these um, insecurities and inequalities within the community. I remember when you told me um, during all the it was the end of May into June when all of the marches were happening in Des Moines and lots and lots of people were getting imprisoned. Um, And you sort of were the person showing up to bail people out. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, So the first kind of nights of protests, like we had talked about probably just like a conversation while making burritos at some point about how it 
would be needed to have a bail fund once like if things kind of got crazy in Des Moines where people were going out and showing their anger and saying what they needed to get off their chests about what was happening in the world and getting arrested because we were seeing it already happen in other cities and not being far from Minneapolis, you know, it's just like our neighbor. And we didn't really know if it would happen in Des Moines because Des Moines, for the most part, is like kind of insulated and people get comfortable easy in Iowa in general. But um, things did kind of pop off and we uh, were like, well, there needs to be a bail fund. How do we do that? <laughs> Basically. And uh, we put together a few things, uh, used some of like our existing kind of network, I guess, and uh, put a call out for funds from the community. And um, some people had already kind of started collecting funds as well to get people out of jail. And pretty soon we we had a bunch of money. <laughs> Before that, we had money from people that we were just borrowing, like between their savings, like, oh, I have this, I, I'll need it back. And if I don't, that's okay. But, you know, it'd be nice <laughs> because that's, you know, house payment or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there was people chipping in, you know, a thousand, three thousand, five thousand just to get everything off and running. Wow. And then we had community groups, um, CCI, uh, the Catholic workers, like donating um, larger sums of money. The Catholic worker was kind of alone too. There was some people that we worked with that were living there and uh, were able to just kind of get a little bit of a loan to get us started with getting people out and then sending people to the jail and sometimes we were there all night and we'd do shifts and we had all kinds of reserves of things for people once they got out water and food snacks cigarettes uh, phone chargers things like that extra sweater if it was cold that people just brought and put together and yeah. Did you see a pretty big outpouring? Did anything surprise you and how people responded? It was huge. Like the response was pretty, pretty beautiful as far as that goes. Like friends showing up to lend a hand and help out at the jail because their friend was in jail that night. The community, every time there was like word of another arrest, just coming through with funds to get people out. Uh, We worked with a group that is connected to the National Bail Fund, which is doing the same thing, but we were able to get everybody out. (laughs) 
I, just, I remember when you told me about this and, and, you know, because I know your astrology chart and your last name is free. So you're, you know, in, in your makeup, your the placement of your sun sign in Virgo is in the 12th house, which is associated with jails and incarcerated people, those who are not seen in the world, those who are, who are kind of outside of society. And that like this natural draw to be of service to those in jail and your name is Molly free and you help to free people from jail. Uh, that is not beyond me. So I just want to acknowledge (laughs) finding this, this beautiful meaning. Yeah. And when you first told me that, like when we had our little astrology kind of thing, I was just like, huh, that's that's interesting. (laughs) I can see that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the thing is like, you're living it, you know, so it's not something that I have to like justify, but you, Mm -hmm. you found purpose in this and you found meaning. I didn't know any of this stuff about you because it's like, we're still kind of moving towards each other in friendship. And Mm -hmm. I think I always thought you were fucking amazing. And then it was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, it's, there's more there's more to the picture there's so much more here in the way that you move through the world towards other and being of of use and trying to be helpful it's like you couldn't not show up you couldn't not attach your name to a venmo account or get involved with the mutual aid i mean that that was how my understanding from the outside when you explained it to me yeah um i guess that's how it felt too like this is just what is what was needed so why wouldn't you (laughs) but it also gave I think people that didn't feel comfortable like being in a crowd in the pandemic um and like facing police because that can be scary uh like a way that they felt like they could contribute as well yeah, to the movement. Yeah, they say time, treasure, or talent, and I feel like you gave all of those. <laughs> and I think that the mutual aid work has been really effective across the country. Um, looking at the world through my Instagram feed in 2020 and 2021, but the Des Moines mutual aid—I'll um, throw up that Venmo account as well because the ongoing efforts are to support those who are in houseless positions or are in threat of eviction, whether that be in the encampments or in the actual housing or apartment situation. How is the momentum? How big of a group is this? And how can people get involved other than sending some money? Well, so what we've said for a long time really grew like way beyond what we, <laughs> what the like, three, four, five of us like thought was even possible. And that was definitely necessary for a lot of the work that we were doing and that we continue to do. But I would say like, if you're in your community, there's always room for more, more mutual aid work, more, more groups of friends getting together and trying to solve a problem in their in their neighborhood and it really connects you 
to uh, to your community. There's a wonderful book about mutual aid um, by Dean Spade. It's a good intro to like organizing. Um, and I would highly recommend that for people that are curious about mutual aid work. Mm-hmm. It really lays out like how to work from a position of like solidarity and charity and to um, how to organize well and kind of avoid some of the pitfalls of working with other organizers and like more of a, um, what do you call it, horizontal way of organizing rather than um, like hierarchical where it's Mm -hmm. all top down. Um, and we saw that as a major issue with the people that were providing aid um, to the houseless people, that it was um, us giving to them and were they worthy of this or that, or they were not, like their full restrictions weren't quite recognized, like whether someone has a a way to get someplace transportation a disability we've just ran into that over and over again where uh, they'll have an appointment to meet with somebody about housing but you know that morning they woke up and uh, their dog had gone missing or something like their tent collapsed the city showed up to bulldoze them you know something where it stood in the way and now they're at the back of the line again to get housing or they didn't have the right paperwork to get there to begin with like to get in their system they don't have their id because it was lost in one of their moves this is the whole slipping between the cracks in the system it's like we have this bureaucracy this massive identification thing that it leaves so many people out I mean, even even the Trump administration's need to have a true ID to fly or to get anywhere, you know, the cost of that and how many different documents that you have to have to be a verified, you know, it's just, it's just a citizenship, uh, what's yeah, the word? It, that puts barriers up yes. for people. So advocacy, solidarity, seeing a problem and getting involved. Like you said, even as a kid, you were seeing that systems were not working <laughs> the way they should. Yeah. If you could, if you could repaint the world, how would you do it differently so that people wouldn't be in these lack of housing, these lack situations, the security culture that we have? So I feel like we're just not taking enough guidance from those that came before us because they didn't fuck it up. (laughs) We should absolutely give public land back to the native people that like kept it beautiful and were stewards of it for thousands of years. Like we're not, we're not looking at history like we should. It wasn't always this way. Jails were recent, police were recent very recent if you look at the history like there there was no need for policing like in like a tribal setting 
if that's what you want to call it, but a native traditional setting. Yeah, they they brought it to their their elders, their their people, and people made you know kind of decisions and and worked as a group and like all these concepts of of mutual aid and solidarity and like consensus. It's it's all more uh, in line with uh, native community living. So just, yeah, listening to people, listening to the earth, that's all we'd really need to do is just slow down. And I think that's one of the lessons that we may have missed with the, with the COVID. Well, Molly, I really appreciate all the perspective that you've shared today, and I should let you get back to your mural. Yeah, I, I'm so thankful and appreciative of your experience, which it rubs against the grain. It's not the mainstream journey. And, you know, that's why you and I are friends. <laughs> and uh, you, you inspire me to want to, to do better um, as part of my own community and trying to build that here. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about like police abolition and land back and all of those things. But, um, you know, there's, there's more information out there. The internet is vast and there's lots of other organizers and good uh, books to read. So I will post what I can, um, what, what sort of good resources that I can find, but I'm, I'm so thankful for you making, making some time for me today. And that was Molly Rose Free joining me during this Virgo season to share herself, her story, her journey, and some of the work that she's providing right now on the service opportunities with Des Moines Mutual Aid. And I couldn't be more grateful. I think going back and listening through this interview had me considering a lot of the ways that I've moved through my life <laughs> and uh really value the outside the box lifestyle that I've gotten to live, um, but how capitalism has certainly held me in its trappings uh, in my productivity obsession, in security needs, in all of the things. So this really gives me an opportunity to sit and consider where I have centered myself in social issues, what I'm taking from this, what I could do more about. And maybe that's what you received as well. Um, I, I, can't, I can't say enough how grateful I am to have this human in my life and to even have a couple markings done by her hand. Um, what a beautiful soul. Thank you, Molly. If you want to support Molly Free's work, you can find her on Patreon. She has Molly Rose Free, and I will post that up on the social media uh, so that you have access to that. And I will connect with that Des Moines Mutual Aid Correct Venmo account so I can get that posted if you would like to support housing relief in the Des Moines area. Um, or if you're interested in doing direct aid and direct action in your community, I will post a image of the Dean Spade book about direct action um, in times of crisis. So if this inspired you to do, to do some work on how you can connect with communities more, I feel what, what a gift that could be. So Virgo season, considerations of activity, the way we process, the way we work within systems. 
So awesome. Thank you, Molly Free. This is Lauren K. Hickman. Uh, This is the Inspired Astrology Podcast. Dragon and I send our love to you wherever you're at. You can, of course, uh, connect with me online through Instagram, Lauren K. Hickman. If you want to support this work, of course, sign up for a reading. That's a big part of uh, why I do this outreach to offer teachings and make this available to other people. If you want to sponsor this, Venmo, Lauren K. Hickman. Send me five bucks. Every little bit helps uh, in in keeping me going and supporting this work and making my life sustainable because I want to help others and I got to start with me. And by starting with you, each of us taking a moment to consider our existence, our appreciation for the possibility to live, even in these really unstable, uncertain times, um, what an exciting time to be alive, to be human, to have this opportunity to grow, evolve, interact, commune with, observe, however we interact with our environments. Um, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope that you are staying in tune with your heart and doing what you can for yourself and that that can spill over into the world. Stay inspired. Thank you.